At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to His followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as He marks out the way of discipleship for us. This week, with all that's been happening and will happen politically, I've been thinking a lot about um, the things that have formed our nation and brought us to the point where we are today. It was uh, July 4th, 19, I'm sorry, July 4th, 1776, that a document came about to our nation that in many ways has been considered to be the most important document of human government ever known to man. We call it our Declaration of Independence. It was the document that declared that we were breaking our political bond with England and that we were gonna become our own independent and sovereign nation. Around the second paragraph of that preamble, the familiar words that most of us have heard many of times and, and know, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and, be, and God has bestowed upon us certain unalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I want you to think about those words this morning as we get ready to go into the word of God. It's interesting that our founding fathers held these three virtues as the highest of virtues. First, life. Their life was worth protecting, that every human life had dignity because every human being was made in the image of God. This was not an idea that they originated, it was one that came to them from the scriptures and shaped their thinking, their philosophy, their view of government and humanity. That if we were gonna have any credibility being a nation that defended any other right, that it must start with the right to life. Because if we don't protect that right, then we don't have any credibility when it comes to protecting any other right. They saw that as a right to be protected at a high cost, and I believe that's true for us today. The second is liberty or freedom, that freedom should be bestowed upon all men, that we should be free to worship God and him alone, that we should make nothing else an idol, that every man and woman should have that freedom and that right. But then the third is the pursuit of happiness. Now I want you to think about how they worded that. It's interesting when you consider it. It's life and liberty, and you would think what would come next is happiness. But it's not what comes next. It is life, liberty, and then the pursuit of happiness. You see, in all their wisdom, in many ways wisdom beyond their capacity, they recognize that no one can give you happiness this side of heaven. The happiness is not a guarantee, it is not a promise. The best that government can do is to protect your right to pursue happiness, to pick a path that hopefully will lead to happiness. You see, the question of their day was not whether or not government could bring happiness or joy, but it was how can we find true happiness and joy? Let me just say as a parenthetical statement in an election week, that they were wise enough to understand the limits of government. Codified in our founding documents is this brilliant and beautiful idea of limited government. How many praise God for that? 
that while government has some power, it does not have all power. That while Washington, D.C. may have some power, Lansing may have some power, it doesn't have all power. All power is in God's hands. And so we have to be careful what we set our hope upon because what government then knew and what we today need to be reminded of is that our ultimate hope cannot be in government. Maybe you thought through your ballot this coming Tuesday, the candidates you'd like to vote for, how you feel about proposals. And you know, we all hope that things turn out well, but what I found in my day, and maybe you've experienced this as well, that typically the Wednesday after an election is a mixed bag of emotions. Some things worked out the way that I hoped, others did not. But my ultimate hope cannot be in those results. My ultimate hope has to be fixed before Tuesday. And hopefully your ultimate hope is already fixed. Hopefully it's fixed on Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, reigning forever and ever. But how do you pursue happiness? Their question was, what is the best pathway to happiness? Jesus is gonna take up that question today in John chapter 16. But before we go there, let me just remind you that there have been attempts to answer the question. And how you answer that question in this country is gonna be in large part based off of the generation you're a part of. If you're my age or older, and I won't give my age, but you can guess. But if you're my age or older, you were raised in a culture that taught hedonism. Now hedonism is a philosophy that really is based off of the pursuit of pleasure without limits. That pleasure without limits, possessions without limits will ultimately bring endless joy. And a generation pursued that as a highest virtue, this thought that greed is good, that he who has the most toys at the end wins. But there's one problem with that. We came to discover it over time, and that is the heart is never satisfied. The eyes are never satisfied. There's never enough. Never enough possessions, never enough parties, never enough alcohol, never enough drugs, never enough sex, never enough entertainment. As a matter of fact, as one author put it, we are amusing ourselves to death. At the end of hedonism, we discover emptiness. Well, a generation saw this, and if you are younger than me, you have been raised in the polar opposite of that. It's called nihilism. A generation watched us pursue pleasure without ends, possessions without ends, and they saw it didn't work for us. And so what they said is, I'm going to go the opposite direction. Nihilism is the thought that if I stop wanting stuff, I can't be disappointed. It's the I don't care attitude. And if you bump into the average young adult or teenager, the disposition you're going to get about most things is, I don't care. College, what do you think about that? I don't care. Friends, what do you think about their opinion? Well, I don't care. What do you think about what's happening in the world around us? Well, I don't really care. And the reality is, is that this is nihilism at its highest. If I don't care, I can't get hurt. If I don't care, then I can't be disappointed. But the problem is, is that we're wired to care. You can't escape it. You care about your future. You care about people, you care about things, you care about dreams. And so at the end of it, we can't escape caring. 
This was a thought that was popularized in the East through Buddhism that was adopted in the West by a generation that will find out that you cannot escape caring. So if uh, the pursuit of pleasure without limits isn't the answer, if not desiring things isn't the answer, then what is the answer? Well, the answer that the gospel gives to how you find true happiness, true and enduring joy, is not to pursue things without limits or not to stop desiring things, but it is to desire the right things or to put a different way to desire the right person. This is what we're going to pick up in John chapter 16 and verse number 16. By now you know the context. Jesus on the eve of his sacrifice on that cross before he purchases our redemption and pays the highest price for our salvation, before he expresses his love through crucifixion, he talks to his closest companions. He wants them to know you're about to experience a whole world of emotions, but if you stick with me, you'll land in the place of joy. That is the promise of the gospel. That is the promise of Jesus, that the way of Jesus leads to full joy because it leads to the Father. And in his presence, the psalmist says, there is everlasting joy. Pleasures forevermore and everlasting joy. Friends, my simple message today is this, that if you're looking for joy, it is found in Jesus. If you're looking for irrevocable joy, a joy that the world can't give and a joy that the world can't take away, a joy that is not simply based off of temporal and changing circumstances, it is found in Christ alone. I love that song we just sang, Christ alone is our hope in life and death, friends. The greatest joy we'll ever experience is in Christ and him alone. Jesus explaining this to his disciples starts in a peculiar way, though. Before we get to joy, he says that the pathway to joy will lead through sorrow. Look at verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, so they were saying, what does this, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. He tells them what seems to be a nursery rhyme or a riddle, one that we have figured out because we're on the other side of it, but imagine how strange it must have felt on this Thursday night before what we call Good Friday to hear Jesus say this riddle, a little while and you will see me no more. Then a little while after that, you will see me again. You're gonna lament, but the world is going to be full of joy at what's about to take place. But we know that a little while what he was referring to, where they will see him no more, is referring to his death. And he's explaining to them his death. And you know, all of us as parents are going to have to think through how are we going to explain death to our children? How many parents have had to have that conversation with your kids before? 
Even leaders are going to have to decide, how are we going to explain bad news to those that we lead? Now, as parents, one of the kindnesses of God is that most often, not always, the first conversation we have with our kids about death is not typically the death of a loved one. Praise God for that. Typically, it might be a pet. It was about a year ago when my son Judah, my youngest son, had his pet fish die. It was a goldfish. I don't know how many of you have survived the death of a goldfish before that traumatic event. Anybody ever survived that, right? For some odd reason, he decided to call his goldfish Blue. Don't ask me why, but that was the goldfish's name. He loved his goldfish. Every day he came in, he fed his goldfish, probably overfed the goldfish a few times. But one day I came home and my wife and I noticed that the fish was, um, let me just say, um, floating at the top. Of, uh, of the fish tank. And uh, we had to choose options. How are we going to talk to Judah about the death of his fish? And you know, there were options that we had. The first option, I'm sad to say, that ran through my mind, didn't take it, but ran through my mind, is we could easily just lie to him. We could easily tell him, well, the fish is just sleeping because he's sad, because he wants to go be with his fish family in the ocean, and we could just flush him down the toilet and he'll get there quickly. (laughs) I I could have told him that. I was tempted. I was tempted, but I'm a pastor and I didn't go that route, all right? (laughs) The other one that I almost did do until my wife talked me out of it was the old uh, switcheroo. You know what I'm talking about. Go drop five bucks, get another one just like it, flush the previous, put the new one in, and there's no harm, no worse for the wear. We could have done that. Or the third option, we could have just tell them the truth, that sometimes fishes die, and we're going to have a little fish funeral. Then we'll go out to a fish restaurant. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> just, just joking. Just, that would have been morbid. That would have been totally wrong, totally wrong. Let me get back to the Bible. (laughs) Jesus had these options too, friends. Jesus could have avoided talking to his uh, followers about this whole painful thing of death. He he could have just told them this rose-colored story that everything was going to be great. But Jesus is honest. I want you to get this because there are some that are here that are a little bit nervous about the gospel. Maybe you're a little bit leery or suspicious about this thing called the Bible. Is it true or is it just simply propaganda? Understand, its veracity is not found in all the fanfare. Its veracity is found in the inconvenient parts of it. The parts that would have been easy to hide Jesus tells them that they're going to be sorrowful. Not just sorrowful, but he says in a little while, you're going to know deep sorrow. And the reason why you're going to know such deep sorrow is because I'm not going to be with you physically. I want you to think about that for just a moment. That sorrow is defined by the gospel as a life without Jesus present. And so it is for you and I. That when Jesus isn't in a marriage, there's sorrow. That when Christ is not present in parenting, there's sorrow. 
That when we reject God from the way that we go about our daily living, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually the road will lead to sorrow. And maybe some of you are at that destination today. You're at a place where you're looking around and you're saying, my life is so broken. How did I get here? This is the definition of what life is like without Jesus. Sorrow fills the world, sorrow fills our heart, sorrow certainly fills our culture. The more that we push Jesus to, to, uh, to the periphery, the more that we say Jesus cannot be talked about in the public square, that Jesus has to be excluded from our national dialogue, the more that we reject the ethics of Jesus, the morals of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the more that we are leaving an inheritance of sorrow for the next generation, Jesus, is the place of joy. The absence of Jesus is the place of sorrow. He tells them that you will know sorrow. But then he goes a step further and he tells them this. He says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Notice the dichotomy between the way we respond and the way the world responds. And this is true for believers both then and now. That so often the way that the world responds is opposite than the way we respond. When we have joy, the world laments. And when we lament, the world has joy. In other words, we shouldn't expect to be a part of the mainstream. We shouldn't expect that there will be a, a, a coalescing, if you will, or an alignment of values and virtues. So often they are divergent, and we shouldn't count that strange. We should understand that it won't always be that way. Lament would not last forever for the disciples, and lament should not last forever for us. The Bible declares that weeping endures for a moment, but how many thank God that joy comes in the morning? And here's the morning that we're pointing to. He says, a little while, and you won't see me, and you're going to lament and be sorrowful, but then a little while after that, and your heart is going to be overwhelmed by joy. And we know what he's referring to with a little while after that. If the first little while was referring to the crucifixion, then the second little while is referring to the resurrection. How many thank God for the resurrection? How many praise God that Jesus is alive? But understand that the road to resurrection has to walk through the valley of crucifixion. Friends, I don't know if you've thought about this lately, but there is no way to have a resurrection without a crucifixion. How do you get a resurrection without a death? How do you experience the heights of joy without some sadness? To put it another way, in order for the good news of the gospel to be good, the bad news of sin has to be bad. And friends, today I want to let you know that the heartache that you're experiencing, if you have not let Jesus be the Lord of your life, it's just a taste in order to spark within you the recognition that I need Jesus. The founding fathers asked the question, what's the road to the good life? The Bible answers that question. It is following Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, yes, you will go through the valley of perplexing sorrow, but you won't stay there because on the other side of that valley of perplexing sorrow is the mountaintop of abundant joy. Maybe you've experienced that joy before. And here's how he describes it in verse 
Number 20, the B part of that verse, he says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Those are good words. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, and I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Friends, those are good words. He's talking about not just joy, but irrevocable joy, untakeable joy, a joy that the world can't give and a joy that the world can't steal, a joy that is present no matter what the economy does. It's not based off of economic fluctuations. It's not based off of political party. It's not based off of military might. It's not based off of the shifting opinions of public sentiment. This joy that Jesus promises you and I is a joy that is fixed in heaven forever because he is fixed in heaven forever. How many thank God that we serve a resurrected king, a sovereign savior, the one who rules forever and ever. His dominion and his kingdom will know no end. Over every square inch of created order, Christ declares mine. Friends, when you put your trust and your hope in Jesus, you put your trust in hope in the joy giver, the peace giver, the life transformer, the deliverer, the lover of your soul, all of that and so much more. And that's why we praise him. That's why we give him worship because he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. The resurrection is the high mark of human history. It is the watershed moment of redemption. It is what only God can do, what only heaven can bring. Because there is a resurrection, I have joy. You ask me how I can sing in a moment like this. I tell you, it's because he reigns. You ask me why my heart is full of hope, and I tell you, it's because he lives. You ask me why is there joy present? Well, it certainly isn't because of the circumstances that are around me. No, if all I had was that, then I would be sorrowful like the world. But the reason why I have joy is because the resurrection is real. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. Our God reigns. Pardon me if I get a little excited, but I actually believe it. I believe it to be true. History has proven it. Tomb is empty. Jesus tells them, you will be sorrowful, but then your sorrow will turn to joy. And then he uses an illustration, and I'm glad he does. Because sometimes the hardest work of putting together a message like this, week after week, is to find illustrations to drive home the point. Because what every teacher knows is that after the sermon or the message or the lesson is over, you're not going to remember points one, two, and three. If I ask you a week from now, what was point two of the sermon last week? You won't remember that. We give points for two reasons. One, to help you to have a structure and what to listen for. But secondly, to help preachers like me not to chase after bunny rabbits, but to stay on task because there's a lot of things going on in my head at any given moment. But what drives home the point is the illustration of the truth. And Jesus illustrates this truth by referring to childbirth, to labor, 
Now, I've been close to it. I've never given birth. Newsflash, only women can give birth to babies. That shouldn't be a revelation, but it's true. Now, I've been close to it. I've been by my wife's side. We've adopted a few, but going through the, the labor pains of a, of a few, and I'm telling you, I've almost passed out just sitting by her side. There was one that the doctor excused me from, and I felt like saying thank you. I pretended to be sad, but I felt like saying thank you. But if you talk to Yodi about the birth of Judah, or Sophia, or Christiana, what's amazing to me is all the pain she went through. I remember her not finding any position of comfort to sleep in around month number eight. It didn't make a difference of where she laid. It was not comfortable for about two months. I remember seeing my wife sit in a rocking chair trying to find a wink of sleep. I remember seeing her waddling up and down the stairs trying to navigate what was terribly uncomfortable. I remember her going through contraction pains and me trying my best to help, feeling so helpless to be an assistant or a support. I remember how hard she squoze my hand a few times as well. I remember seeing her go through pain. Maybe you ladies in here that have gone through childbirth can say amen to that truth. But what's interesting is when you hear her talk about the birth of those beautiful children, you will not hear her talk about the pain. You'll have to ask her questions about that, but her narrative and her story will all be of the great joy she experienced when those precious ones were laid on her chest and she could hold them and they could sense and smell her presence near. All that joy canceled out all the sadness that was there prior to. It wasn't that it wasn't real. It was just the joy of the baby being here was so all-surpassing that it just the, the pain just paled in comparison. Well, my friends, this is exactly the relationship between Jesus in our lives and Jesus not in our lives. This is a relationship between the resurrection and the crucifixion. The crucifixion is real. It is. It is the hinge pins of our faith. It is real, and there was sorrow, but the resurrection was so far greater, so much more joy that it eclipses the sadness, and today we as a church gather here not to mourn in sadness, but to rejoice in joy because Jesus is alive. And how many praise God for that truth? When the resurrection becomes real to you, the fluctuations of the economy will come and go, but it won't strip you of your joy. When the resurrection becomes real to you, there will be death, you will lose loved ones, but joy will remain. When the resurrection becomes real to you, there will be a hope, a stubborn hope, an irrevocable hope, an unshakable hope given by God that cannot be taken away. Today, I want to encourage you to trust in Jesus. I want you to know the joy of the resurrection. I don't want your life to be marked by sorrow forever. 
I pray that the sorrow of this moment will not be the last chapter of your story, but that a greater chapter is coming, a chapter of joy. And if you are already a believer, I pray that we are spreading the joy of the resurrection through our singing, through our teaching, through our preaching, through our witnessing, through everything that we do to the glory of God so that others can experience this joy. Because when you are a believer, your great joy joy is not just that you have a relationship with the Father through Jesus, but that you have fellowship with others in that relationship. In a few weeks, we're going to have baptism. One of my great joys is that my daughter Sophia is going to be in this month's baptism. And I'm so grateful My wife has been reading scriptures with her every night, and Sophia's ready to get baptized, and and I'm really excited about that, but what I'm most excited about is that my daughter's going to enter into this joy of knowing the resurrection and all that it means for life and death. And why did he do it? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he die? Why did he raise again? The answer is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came because God loves you. And I want you to hear that today. God loves you so much that he sent his son to pay a sin debt that you could not pay. He loves you enough to see you far from him and to chase after you even when you're running from him. Don't deny that type of love. Trust in him today. Well, he closes by inviting them to follow him into confident boldness. Look at what he says in verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name, asking you will receive that your joy may be full. You know, we pray today in the name of Jesus. We end prayers that way so commonly, so casually, and we may be tempted into thinking that that's the way it's always been. But there was a time when people didn't pray in Jesus' name. There was a time when people didn't know God the Father intimately. But Jesus has come now. The resurrection has happened now. And so now we can have a relationship with the Father through the Son, and we can go boldly into his presence and pray and offer petitions in Jesus' name. He says something to them that we should all rejoice in. He says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, that day he's referring to is that that day where they would see him again, that that little while that was going to happen after the first little while. He says, in that day, the day of the resurrection, you won't be asking me the questions that you're asking me right now, like, what do you mean by this? And what do you mean you're going to the Father? No, it will all make sense on that day of the resurrection. And today, as we stand here, we're not asking what this riddle means. We're not asking, what does it mean that a little while he would go away and a little while he would come back again? We know what the answer is. We know that the resurrection has happened. And he says, when you have accepted that, when you have come to faith and trust in me, then you can boldly go before the Father 
and you can ask what you will, and he will grant it to you because your will will be aligned with his will. Today, I want to encourage you to know that you can boldly go to the Father in his name if you have put your faith and trust in him. And the first prayer you need to pray, if you've never prayed in Jesus' name before, is, Father, forgive me, save me, redeem me, and make me yours. If you pray that prayer today, you can have salvation and you can know everlasting joy. And how many are glad about it? Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me all over the church. If you know the resurrection, you know the source of joy, and it's our job as believers to pass on the answer, to pass on the cure to the sickness that ails the souls of men, to tell folks where they can find the good life. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights like life and liberty and the right to pursue happiness. Everyone's pursuing it. The only question is, what's the right pathway to the good life? How many have found that the right pathway is the way of Jesus, that Jesus' way always leads to joy? I'm gonna pray for us. And then we'll dismiss, but if you are here today and you want prayer, you are here today and you need the love of Jesus, the joy of salvation, then please know that our friends will be at the front. And if you are a guest or a visitor, please stop at the Connect Desk. We love to wrap our arms around you as you take your next step in your joy with Jesus and your journey with Jesus. And for those of you who are watching online, just type Connect and we'll follow up with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and dying and raising again. And thank you that salvation is in your hands. But we don't have to lie about death. We can talk about it openly because we know there's one who's conquered death, hell, and the grave. Thank you that the cross met the resurrection. And today we can celebrate that the tomb is empty and that you are alive. May our hope in life and death be in Christ alone. Bless as we depart this place, but never your presence. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.